Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I got quite little sleep last night. Oh no. I was pondering a big question. I was aware that we would be doing the Ben Chifley pod today. And I was thinking, if Ben Chifley grew up in Bathurst... Where would he have gone to for year five camp? It's mm, a really good question. Well, also, w- would they have taught the gold rush in the 40s? Or oh, no, he's, sorry, he's an adult in the 40s. This <laughs> is like the 1910s. Do you, reckon, do you reckon it's like a role reversal where like, so like we would go to Bathurst and like pan for gold. Mm. They come to like the city and like do spreadsheets and stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, that kind of there. <laughs> come to Botany Bay if yeah. they go to... Mm. For, Year three camp, Hyde Park Barracks. Mm. The mm. dish wouldn't have been at Parks yet. Couldn't have gone there. <laughs> Borkley's house. Or maybe it was there. Yeah. Do you reckon he drove around the the Mount Panorama racetrack? Mm. You know, when he was growing up. Well, we'll come on to that because I think I think there's a direct link between Ben Chifley and Mount Panorama. Wow. Maybe the there big banana. In <laughs> <Harbor>. <laughs> the other thing I'm curious about. He goes on to decline living in the lodge. So he's like, no, nah, I don't care. I don't want to live in the Prime Minister's Lodge. I just want to have my own little igloo in Canberra. Hmm. Do you reckon he suffered the hardship of not being with his mates in their cabins at Year 5 camp? And <laughs> <laughs> that gave him perspective for the rest of life to <laughs> not count on getting first-class accommodation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it, it shaped you dramatically, you know, your experience of the... Of the Bathurst uh, cabin. So, yeah, I don't see why why another great man wouldn't also be shaped by a similar... I think something did happen on that camp because it shaped his his thinking to not want to live in Sydney. Mm. So that that year five camp to Sydney, that may or may not have happened. Has, to Canberra? Has, no, he would, uh, he would have gone to Sydney, right? Yeah. If we went to Bathurst. Oh, right. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Sorry. I thought you talked... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah what, it's had it's had an impact. What could he have seen? Hmm. Yeah, we'll have to find out. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Ben Chifley, crazy like cra- like most prime ministers up until this point have either been Sydney or Melbourne because that's just kind of the conventional mm. route. Do you know what his job was before he was prime minister? He was a train driver. Wasn't he was he? a train driver. I long for a day where we can return to having prime ministers that are just your ordinary <laughs> man, just like. Hmm. Paul Gallon is Prime Minister. <laughs> I don't know if I long for that day specifically, but um, I, I, I get the sentiment. Too much money in boxing. <laughs> so, Ben Chifley, right? So, we kind of left John Curtin with him actually dying six weeks before the end of the war. Very interestingly, Chifley was not the one who was immediately made Prime Minister. That guy was actually a guy called Frank Ford. 
So he kind of took over as the next prime minister, originally designed to be an interim prime minister, but there was kind of a perception that he would stay on as the prime minister. Bit of drama behind the scenes. Mm. So what happens, there's a prime minister of, he was a Labour prime minister all the way back in the early 30s. His name was James Scullin. He had huge beef with Jack Lang. Every Labour guy ended up having huge beef with Jack Lang, apart Mm. from Jack Lang and Paul Keating. They were the only two Labour guys that didn't seem to have a run-in with Jack Lang. So Jack Lang has beef with James Scullin over mainly how he handled the Great Depression. James Scullin is eventually deposed as Labour leader because one of his front benches, a guy called Joseph Lyons, defects to form the United Australia Party that we looked at at the very beginning of this three-part series. James Scullin, he comes back in the scene in 1945 and he actually goes to Ben Chifley and he's like, you know what? I've got some mates, you know. If you go for the leadership, we'll back you. And so Frank Ford, who's expected to be this person who succeeds Prime Minister Curtin, is now very suddenly under a lot of pressure because he's starting to realise that he doesn't have uniformity behind him. Hmm. And Ben Chifley actually emerges as the victorious candidate. Um, He got up 64 to 22 in the ballot. So he actually won quite convincingly in that leadership ballot. I do like a good leadership spill. Hmm. I would like to see more contexts where a leadership spill is possible. <laughs> I am a huge advocate for leadership spills in the primary school leadership team. <laughs> Take the badge, strip the badge. Could you imagine? True, yeah. Because Ben, Ben, as a, as a vice, Ben. Yeah. Could you imagine? Um, we we can we can name your 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 your, your superior was Logan. Yeah, yeah. Could you imagine like? Um, I just start like murmurings like. Logan's actually on performance-enhancing drugs. He's not just winning the athletics carnival off his own merit. Um, Logan wears spikes. None of us have spikes. <laughs> We'd be as fast as him if we wore spikes. I feel like there must have been scenarios where this has happened, especially in primary school, because in a lot of primary schools, it, it'll just be the the kid who's the loudest that would mm. maybe get the captaincy. Maybe not in Barney Bay, a very prestigious <laughs> role, but in other primary schools. And then, yeah, that kid, he could be a bad egg and it's just a mo- matter of time until he does something wrong. Hmm. Yeah. But can you imagine, like, Ben going to year four, going well, maybe, to year four classrooms, just being, yeah. trying to show up the numbers on the phone? <laughs> maybe but. the burden of leadership is catalyst for change in his attitude. And mm. that... That's why leadership spills never happen. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would love a good, like, at school assembly the week after a leadership spill, <laughs> then to get forward. This was mm. not a leadership change we wanted to make. <laughs> it was one we had to make. The government yeah. has lost its way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, the school has lost its way. <laughs> we will get the school back on track. <laughs> it's like, or even like... In royalty, you know, I decided to marry outside of um, a divorced woman. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't expecting this. Wow, yeah. Can you you imagine Buckingham Palace voting on having Harry be the successor rather than William? Mm. I'd say more leadership spills, just... Yeah. Mm. I think we need more drama in in these areas of life. Yeah, Yeah, Um, true. Yeah, like, why should political drama be, you know... Withheld only to politics, <laughs> like only to, to Canberra politics. You know, we need, yeah, there's leadership everywhere, and some of it needs to be spilled. <laughs> <laughs> my um, my friend's son is on the SRC, 
um, my friend, you know, what I'm talking about, he lives in Armadale. Mm-hmm. His son is in kindergarten. Um, so rural school, right? So everyone, every year group gets represented at the SRC. So kindergarten is on the <laughs> SRC with your six. <laughs> and oh, basically God. they're like, they kind of give him the full, we want to hear your ideas. Young people are the future of this school. <laughs> what do you think? He's like, why don't we build a Ferris wheel? <laughs> well, why don't we? <laughs> um, that's so good. <laughs> and there's this, um, in education right now, there's this huge conversation around um, forming versus performing. And what's happened is school has gone from being an institution that forms to an institution that encourages perform. Yeah. So rather mm. than we're what here about, to talk. What about storm? <laughs> Storming and norming. And Transforming. I saw like... It was. I saw in like some some slides that were presented at work. There was some storming and, and norming and conforming <laughs> going on. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. No, it's a, a thing. Sort of a team building <laughs> mechanism. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah, but there's whole thing called forming versus performing. Mm. So it, previously, schools used to form people. Now schools are encouraging students to perform, and rather than being like we're here to tell you or instruct you in the future, we're here to kind of hear who you are and encourage you to be who you truly are. Mm. And so we're seeing this in like yeah, kindergarten SRC rather than like. Do your stripes, like learn how to count to to, to forty. <laughs> then we'll get, let you have some ideas for the school. <laughs> now they're like, yeah, you're the future of this school. What ideas do you have right here and now? <laughs> so, eventually, did emerge victorious, and the boy from Bathurst became the prime minister of Australia. And that's a hugely significant moment. Mm. It's a train driver who becomes the PM. Like, what an incredible. Like, Liberal or Labor aside, what is an incredible story for any aspirational Australian that you can be a train driver and go on to become Prime Minister? Hmm. Like, nowadays, that's pretty much impossible. you got to be a lawyer first. But, yeah, Keating was the last non-lawyer Prime Minister we had, if I'm not mistaken. But, again... I don't know if ScoMo was a lawyer. True, I think, actually. I think he studied... Inv- I, I like, know it was marketing. Environmental but- economics or something. Oh, True. Okay, right. well, yeah, there you go. I correct that. Maybe no. last Labor Prime Minister that wasn't a. That's oh, it's probably the kid. last one outside of. <laughs> I reckon Howard definitely Scott was. Oh, did you know about Abbott? Obviously, Turnbull was. Gillard was. I think Abbott. Well, I don't know. He's a UCID alumni, so he probably was UCID law. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, he so Ford had been the acting Prime Minister um, when. Well, they kind of figured it out. But for Chifley, he had actually been the acting prime minister throughout the war when Curtin was overseas. So when Curtin was abroad, Chifley had stepped up into the job. So he had plenty of experience in the top job. And yeah, as soon as Chifley came to power, atomic bombs, Japan's surrendered and the war's over. The issue is, is that it's a progressive evacuation from the South Pacific. The soldiers aren't immediately taken out of the South Pacific. And in fact, some soldiers are still in Papua New Guinea by Christmas and the war ends in August of 1945. So, again, imagine being those soldiers, like, yeah, watching everyone kind of carry on, party. There's, like, celebrations in the streets and you're just playing cards in Port Moresby. Actually, it doesn't sound that bad more I talk about. <laughs> I'm sure they miss their families, though. Um, so what Chifley did is Chifley, again, wanting to not come across as being out of touch, what he did was he went to spend Christmas in Papua New Guinea with the soldiers that were still stationed there until the evacuation was complete. And so he went and hung out with them. On the way home, they had a terrible storm. And again, there's storms everywhere, right? (laughs) And the storm did not norm. 
Oh, no. And it it looked like it was life-threatening. So what they do is they frantically wake up Chifley and they're like, like, Prime Minister, like, we're probably going to die here. Chifley's response is great. I'm paraphrasing here. I've In my video, uh, they made it, about him. I'm picturing he just gets up and he's like, be calm, be still. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that, so that's why Jesus got the idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, that won't be our first Jesus Ben Chifley comparison of the night. Um, dear, oh dear. The other one is actually much more explicitly Jesus though. So basically... They wake Chifley up and Chifley's like, look, and again, I'm paraphrasing. I've got the exact quote on my YouTube channel, but Chifley says something to effect of, look, when I'm in Canberra, I'm the captain. We are not in Canberra. And he just rolled over and went back to sleep. And basically it was more or less telling them, guys, I'm off the clock here. Like, please. <laughs> well, to be fair, I, I sort of get it, right? Like, what could he contribute to making that any... Yeah. It's like... Yeah. Oh, we need to climb the rigging. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some leadership of like... All right, we're going to stay calm. We're not going to panic right, here. Right, true. Which true, I guess which he did. He didn't... Morale, maybe. He's, yeah. He stayed very calm. Yeah. He's, yeah. Um, you can see like a LinkedIn post, like, it's really important to put boundaries around your work. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you don't take any work home. I'm 100% present at work and I'm 100% present with my family. <laughs> so, yeah, basically he just said, I'm, I'm not the captain here and went back to bed. The storm calmed down. And again, this is kind of... Chifley was seen as perhaps the most true blue prime minister we've ever had. Probably the right, his obvious rival would be. Who is our truest, bluest Aussie prime minister? Skymo. <laughs> Bob Hawke. Bob Hawke. Oh, yes, of course. So, Skulls Beers. Yeah, so yeah. basically, the, in most Australians won't remember as far back as Ben Chifley, but in the common conception, Chifley was seen as kind of the truest, bluest Australian because he was your ordinary train driver man. And so. Mm-hmm. He basically said, look, I can't do anything about it. Let me go back to bed. It's been a big year being the new Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> mm. When he went back to the lodge, sorry, when he went back to Canberra, he actually declined to stay at the lodge, again, more or less because it was too upper class. Mm-hmm. So he didn't stay in the Canberra lodge for the Prime Minister. He also didn't actually own a dinner suit. Wow. And he refused to buy one. He's like, it's a waste of money. So, like, when he's... The issue is, is that... Just in the, the trackies and the Nike tech, he's just, <laughs> <laughs> he's just... Fair play. Yeah, no uh, no young liberals on schoolies attire. <laughs> so, and that's going to be really difficult because the end of the 40s, there's a lot of international diplomacy that's quite important on the back of World War Two, And you can't rock up, not in your dinner suit, right, to mm. kind of these like private functions with President Truman and whatever. Mm. So... Basically, what he does, and we'll come on to this a little bit later in the pod, is he just outsources foreign affairs. He's like, ah, there's this guy called Herbert Everett. He's got he's got a PhD. He's a doctor. He's Dr. Herbert Everett. And kind of like the Kevin Rudd of the 40s, that's the way I'd describe him. Hmm. He was like, ah, leave it to the doc. And basically, any foreign affairs question, he kind of just was like, well, I'm a train driver. I don't care. <laughs> and kind of outsourced Country it. Country boy, R.M. Williams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically... His whole shtick was that he was the true blue Aussie Prime Minister that was no-nonsense, blue, blue-collar, got the job done. Now, at the end of World War II, you've got this huge issue of how do you rebuild society. It failed after World War One. So after World War One, soldiers weren't repatriated well. The economy wasn't handled well, hence the Great Depression. And basically, for every nation in the world, not just Australia, it was like, okay, we really messed up after World War One. We got the Great Depression, we got Hitler, we got Imperial Japan we got to make sure that we don't do that again. And so America kind of takes care of Germany. That's not Australia's issue at all. 
But for Australia, we've got to make sure that our soldiers can get jobs and we've got to make sure that our economy doesn't grow at an unsustainable rate. Because in the 20s, right, banks were giving loans left, right and centre, which made people, which credible economy throughout the 20s until it kind of the, the bubble burst when people weren't able to repay the banks. And that contributed to a huge crisis. So Chifley's whole issue is like, okay, what can we do to actually have growth but have really steady growth? And how can we actually kind of put shackles on the economy to make sure it doesn't grow too quickly? It's like Malcolm Turnbull's worst nightmare, right? Like, <laughs> basically, like, <laughs> we are not going to do jobs and growth. We're going to do very slow incremental growth. So, firstly, they introduced something called the Soldier Settlement Scheme. Ooh, the triple thank, S. Yeah, thank goodness he added that third S there. <laughs> <laughs> Would not have flown well back in 1946. This rings a bell. Uh, was there something where they just gave soldiers land? That was the World War One sol- oh. soldier settlement scheme. I apologise. No, I'm actually glad you brought that up because the World War One soldier settlement scheme was widely deemed to fail. Yeah. The issue is you got this trans. The economy is forever different after World War One. Before World War One, it's mostly an agra- like the world economies are mostly agrarian. But after World War One, basically you've put all your attention towards developing weaponry. Your economies have become much more mechanized. Like the American economy after World War One becomes incredibly mechanized. You've got Henry Ford. Um, and you've got pretty much since the development of the Model T, the American economy becomes way more industrialized. So giving farming land doesn't work because a lot of soldiers are like, actually, this isn't the future of the economy. Yeah. And it was like the land wasn't really farmable. Yes. And in nowhere close to anywhere. Yeah. And they, 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 didn't, they didn't get the plains of Bathurst. It's good to have land. Yes. So, so Ben Chifley's like, okay, I'm a country boy. Oh, we'll keep the land for like, yeah, the people who actually know what to do with it. Instead, we'll kind of focus our attention elsewhere. So we actually gave some cash payments. How much cash you got was was variable on like basically your involvement in the war, your kind of future job prospects and, and that sort of thing. Um, so it wasn't a fixed amount for soldiers, but there were cash benefits. What was more important though was that everyone who served in war got free vocational training. So you want to learn a trade? Free TAFE. And so, basically, his whole thing is, like, we want to make the transition out of war as easy as possible for soldiers. There was also a huge issue with life insurance companies. They don't want to give policies to soldiers. Because hmm. there's, firstly, injury, and then there's PTSD. Um, life expectancy goes down significantly since serving in war. And typically, because a lot of Australians are also captured POWs. Mm-hmm. that they're quite concerned about. So they're not giving policies. So basically, Ben Chifley steps in and says, you've got, you've got to do it. Tough luck. You are not allowed to deny someone a life insurance policy because they serve the nation. They did it so that you could have your life insurance company. And so Ben Chifley kind of lays down the law with the life insurance companies. And he also gave a little bit of Centrelink. So there were some unemployment allowances that were given to soldiers who struggled to find employment, though that had an expiry date and they couldn't just live off that forever. So that is quite different to the land settlement scheme that was largely based after World War One. And so again, Chifley's whole idea is let's not repeat the mistakes that we made after World War One. We're going to do this slow and steady. He also developed, or like he was responsible for one of the biggest infrastructure projects in Australian history. I'm going to have a guess. West Connects. <laughs> Man, I know the I know West Connects was a giant waste of money, but 
it is an aesthetic road to drive along, <laughs> I must say. Wait till you go on North Connects. Oh my gosh, that's, that's levels above West Connects. Uh, can you repeat the question? Biggest infrastructure Biggest project infrastructure. in Australian history. Is it the Harbour Bridge? No. Oh, that's earlier. That's 30s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you study the Harbour Bridge in year four? Um, maybe. We did a whole term on the Harbour Bridge. Wow. It was like... <laughs> That's a real propaganda <laughs> machine, isn't it? Just... <laughs> I like that. I was like, if soldiers fell off the bridge, they would throw their hammer to break I the water I remember before. that too. Yeah, wow. I pondered that for ages, yeah, I, being I like, bit... would that work? Hmm. Should we try it? <laughs> is, it a, is it a road? No. It's, okay, hint, it's got scheme in the title. Oh, is it like a... Um, is it the dam? Very close. The hydro. Yeah, that's part. Uh, that's part the, of the yeah. bigger. Um, uh, we will year six camp. So the, the hydro dam. The hydro dam is part of this infrastructure project. Oh, I feel like I can remember the name. Brumbies. Like the snowy mountains, right? Snowy mountain scheme. Yeah. 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 Oh. So basically, okay. the snowy mountain scheme. It's like the you, know, you got huge dams. Uh, you've got pipelines. You've got power stations. Yeah. It actually taken until 1972 to complete. So the Liberals kind of carried on with this. And very interestingly, Malcolm Turnbull actually also tried to pick up on that, like Snowy Mountains 2.0. And basically, he actually uses a lot of the language that Chifley uses uh, to discuss future infrastructure projects. Here's another really interesting one in terms of how Ben Chifley restructures post-war society. There was no official Holden car at this point. So Holden had long been a company But their job was to... They were owned by General Motors in the UK. Their job was to supply other car companies with parts. That was kind of Holden's... That's what the automotive industry was in Australia. Mm -hmm. During World War II, Holden actually created vehicles to use in war. So Ben Chifley actually goes, hey, we will subsidise... Like, having a car industry is going to be so important for the future of Australia. We will subsidise you to create your own cars. We want Australian-made cars because the reason why is that the automotive industry is a combination of all technologies. So you've got mm. you like uh, you got electrical, you've got mechanical, and you've got um, basically just your manufacturing cap- capacity as well. And so a good if you have a good car sector, that's usually an indicator that you've got a good manufacturing sector. And so Chifley was really big on having Australian cars. The question I have is: This the reason why the Bathurst One Thousand? Why Mount, like why Mount Panorama gets the biggest V8 supercars mm. event in the year? If they're like, because Holden was always, they're always one of the big players in. Was it? V8 is it not supercars. just Holden versus Ford, or was it more? Is it? It, it used to be it for a long time. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. You got like Chevrolet now. Really, I haven't watched the Bathurst One Thousand since about two thousand and eight. Mm. I remember when Craig Lowndes was on Australia's Greatest Athlete. I remember laughing at Mark Winterbottom's name. <laughs> <laughs> He's got Frosty. That's his nickname. That's his <laughs> I'm sure he has a, a. What do you reckon his Bathurst camp was yeah, like? Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, again, so, like, while he's standing there on Mount Panorama just dreaming, you know, what could be, all his mates are just absolutely ripping in. Just <laughs> his winter bottom. So, the current, Frosties. the current cars are Ford Mustang and Chevrolet Camaro. True, because we lost Holden's several yeah. years ago. Sad. Yeah. So, basically. I, I don't know, genuinely, is there is there any link between Chifley doing Holden a favour and Holden doing Chifley a favour? Like, Chifley's like, mm. okay, I'll give you the money. you got to do this for Bathurst, though. Yeah. Could be. Could be. Wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me, you know. So down to earth. He just knows what, knows what his people need. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And so in 1948, they released their first model. It was called the Holden 48215. Ah, really rolls off the tongue. They really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> goodness, they got better at their marketing. Yeah. <laughs> I really miss the era of advertising by being hyper descriptive about the product. And there's just no, there's mm. no, um, like gloss on it whatsoever. It's yeah. Like, it's no, it's not about like the experience. It's just like it has four cylinders and it has yeah. this amount <laughs> it's got seats in the back you know it's like a year one recount <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I do miss that because now if you seen the Mac is that it's like mum I'm pregnant and they're in the Mac is drive it's like Mac is there for the big Mac <laughs> 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 yeah it's like I really wasn't <laughs> if I'm, I'm, I'm there I'm, I'm not thinking about Maccas <laughs> real, real bystander in that story <laughs> Um, so the other important, one, two other important policies was one he introduced something called the Hospital Benefits Act, so that gave subsidies to state governments to provide better healthcare. And then mm-hmm. the last thing that was really important was that he gave uh, two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, not dollars, pounds each year to the ABC, and basically okay. like up your up your broadcasting game. We want to have an independent broadcaster in Australia. Yeah. So the ABC was state owned at the time then. Yeah. Yeah. But received quite limited funding. Gotcha. Menzies, who's the opposition leader, detested this. He was like, this is a joke. We've got private companies that can do the same thing. And there's mm. no need to spend £250,000 on this. And so Menzies really bitterly protests the ABC funding as well. Right. Was it sort of a political tool at that point? Or was it just just like the people need the news? That was, yeah, it was... It was like it, like in terms of people's perception of the ABC, is it like the quality of it comes and goes with depending on who's in government. So, typically, mm-hmm. this is kind of friendly Geordie's argument is that the ABC is not afraid of Labor cutting their funding because Labor's always been the supporters of the ABC. Yeah. So again, cheerfully, and they've consistently received good funding under Keating, under Kevin Rudd, and so forth. The other side of the coin is that when, when the Liberals are in, are in power, which is most of the time, they're worried about the Liberals cutting their funding. And so typically yeah. they'll have a softer leaning towards the Liberal Party. They're, they're certainly like, yeah, obviously you tune into the ABC, they're no fans of Tony Abbott. They're no fans of kind of Peter Dutton or the right wing of the, the Liberal Party faction, or they're, they're yeah. kind of the, the drives yeah. of the Liberal Party. But typically they are more afraid of the Liberal Party because the Liberal Party is going to cut their funding when they know Labor won't. And so, under Labor, I do think is actually a lot less of a political tool. So, you know, like, so David McBride, Friendly Geordie's lawyer, Mark Davis, mm-hmm. he used to be a journalist for the ABC. Right. So, like, again, it was kind of it's widely considered that under Whitlam and under Hawke and Keating, so the 70s and the 80s was kind of the golden era of the ABC. And the ABC was a really quality broadcasting network then. Now it's used much more as a political tool as kind of just providing, like, soft pro-liberal party messages or disenergizing the Labor Party voting base to make them teal or greens voters rather than mm. having them they're, they're not che- clearly cheering on the Liberal Party by any they're not Sky News but there's a wide argument that's made typically by Labor voters that they try to create a lot of apathy around the Labor Party yeah which will then split the resources and split voters that being said I think Chifley got it right there were some good ABC kids shows <laughs> play school Play school, Arthur. I mean, could, do we could we do we thank the Wiggles? 
Sitting ducks. Chifley could not have imagined how good ABC3 would get. (laughs) Like he was, he was probably thinking like, you guys, here's 250,000 pounds, you know, one channel, possibly two. Yeah. ABC3 channels. (laughs) You're kidding. Yeah. So this, this is the kind of cover, uh, the kind of pop and you get your tax policy. Okay. uh, Understood. Understood. (laughs) We're going to make a show about ducks and alligators. (laughs) Yeah. True. So like, I assume he wasn't, like, were they making kid shows back then? I'm sure, sure they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, you even go back, like, the, there's, like, there's, like, The Little Mermaid's out by that point. Hmm. Jungle Book's on the verge of coming out, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Snow White's out. I think that's, like, the only kids' content that's really... Hmm. I think that was kids' radio content. I don't know if that's much yeah, kids' okay. broadcasting content. War of the Worlds, you know. Yeah. Just awesome worlds. <laughs> kids love that. <laughs> the Mr. Mitchell History Podcast. <laughs> so... This is Chifley Rebuilding Society. We then kind of jump across and cross the pond to the end of war negotiations. Last week, we kind of covered how America were pushing Australia further and further out after kind of the Kokoda campaign and that Australia was getting sidelined for America. So basically, when Japan fell, America was responsible for rebuilding Japan. And basically, there was a council of key countries that got together to decide what are we going to do with Japan? America's the leader of that. Douglas MacArthur kind of actually steps in as the temporary temporary governor of Japan. We put someone forward called Sir Frederick Eggleston. He was going to be a representative. Fair. Who would you have represent us on the world? If I if there was like a UN summit for D tier mm. celebrities. Yeah, like I'm not saying we we are not even DT celebrities. I'm sorry, I'm saying that like we are fascinated yeah, yeah. with DT celebrities. Not yeah, yeah. We're like O tier. Yeah, like who who best best captures the Australian the Australian essence? Perhaps you want someone outspoken, or maybe not. Mm. Mm. A negotiator. I don't, I'd put forward Harry. Our friend Harry. Our friend Harry. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would represent yeah. us quite well. He. Look, Harry's known for, and he'll come back on the pod again. You haven't seen the end of Harry just yet. <laughs> I say Harry is a, he's a quiet operator. So most of the time he's not quite Australian. He's, he's not a particularly outspoken man. He, he mm. could quite easily pass for a quiet Australian. That being said, when you need someone to like actually like do something quite intimidating, Harry has a pretty good track record of coming out of the woodwork. So I, I don't know. And you also won't find anyone that doesn't like Harry. I, I agree. Hmm. Do you ever when we snuck on to snuck on, sorry, that's when we, we went on to the Penrith Panthers. I don't I don't think I want to attach myself to that. <laughs> I, I think the statute of limitations has well protected us by now. <laughs> we were all like, oh no no no, let's not do it, let's not do it, let's not do it. And then Harry just <laughs> saunters onto the field solo. Like, he just starts kicking a soccer ball. Yeah. Like Java. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have Harry. I'd have Harry represent yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. He also mm. got a Mexican wave going in a crowd. That's pretty. That's a pretty mm. impressive feat. What about Ricky Lee? <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't think she's a good negotiator because her expectations are too high. Like okay. she needs it raining diamonds. She's like her yeah. her biggest song is how she's unsatisfied in a healthy relationship, and how she has unrealistically high expectations as to what a relationship looks like mm. I would be worried that she wouldn't give enough concessions yeah or maybe that would help she yeah would like- maybe maybe you're like guys we're better than this like <laughs> the people of the world deserve better we uh, yeah it's a great call Jake it's great 
it opens it up. I didn't, I didn't realize if we could just send our friends. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe dad. Dad. Can go. <laughs> you do have good relations with the minister for infrastructure in Vanuatu. <laughs> yeah, you could really leverage those connections. For, uh, <laughs> they hold a lot of sway on the world stage. <laughs> I reckon maybe like a Ned Zelich. I feel, uh, I feel it could be good. Uh, Man of the world. European, yeah, European connections. Um, I mean, we saw Ned's Naples, but I feel like he could be <laughs> Ned's Geneva. You know, it could be anywhere. And I feel like he Carl would... and Jackie O. Mm. That'd be a good one. Yeah, they don't have a duo, but good cop back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like Ned Zelich would be good at using diplomatic language. So like, every time it gets like frosty in the negotiating table, he'd just be like, uh, for me, would just be like, I'm, I'm just saying from my perspective. What I'm saying mm. is how it is. I'm just saying this is how it is from my perspective. Yeah. You've got your perspective. We're going to meet somewhere in the middle. I feel like he'd be a good negotiator. Mm. Out of all those that we mentioned, the only one I reckon that would stand a chance against the US would probably be Carl Sandlands, I reckon. Oh, but mm-hmm. Harry, Harry, Harry's a US, <laughs> Harry's a US citizen. Maybe he's got got the goods. The reason why is this was the quote from Frederick Eggleston about America during the war conferences. They have the view that because the US won the war, she will determine the peace. She will consult her allies, but in the case of difference between them, the US will proceed. What's the point of consulting your allies if mm. you like? I'm just going to do what I want anyway. Yeah. I'm just, just soundboarding. Yeah. Actually, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so, effectively, they used an index to measure contributions. We did discuss this very briefly on the last pod. So, a country's contribution to the war effort would be measured by machinery, battles, like, so can their contribution in key battles, the amount of lives lost, and just their broader industrial output. We valued our own contribution at 28%. To the fall of Japan specifically? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To repel on Japan and beating them in the war. America valued it at 8%. Hmm. It got worse, though. So Japan was divided into four sections of influence. So, of course, the main island of Japan was given to America because they wanted to get control of Tokyo. And fair enough, they were the primary contributors to the war. The Republic of China, so Chiang Kai-shek, this is before China's fallen to Mao Zedong, Report um, like Chiang Kai Shek's China's fallen to Mao Zedong. The ROC, they get another part of Japan as well. And fair enough, they endured the Nanjing Massacre. They were fighting literally Japan for over a decade. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. The next ones who get a slice of Japan are the UK. At that, you're like, oh, Churchill kind of abandoned Asia to focus on Europe, which mm. I, I totally understand, but he should get influence in Europe, not necessarily in Asia. He kind of let Singapore go and then blamed the Australians for it while Australia were the ones who suffered the fallout of nearly being invaded by the fall of Singapore. Churchill cared about defending Burma. He had nothing to do with stopping Japan go southwards. Next one that is a total slap in the face of Australia is Australia kind of sitting there thinking, all right, number four, that's going to be us. Mm-hmm. Like We're going to get mm-hmm. that final slice of the pie. It's given to the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union, they basically, at the final hour... So this is, we're talking late July, early August, 1945. We're two weeks away from the end of the war. The Soviet Union, they invade Manchuria at the final hour to be like, yeah, we're helping, we're helping. Like, uh, we're helping with this war. The buzzer beater. Yeah. Um, and basically they come in like true vultures and clean up Japan in northern China. And then they're like, yeah, we, we helped. We want a slice of Japan. 
And because it's Cold War tensions and because America's got to be very careful about needlessly antagonizing the Soviet Union and actually kind of focusing their attention towards the real battles with the Soviet Union, they decide to give the final slice of Japan to the Soviet Union. And they actually deem the Soviets' contribution as being greater than Australia's, which is just a total slap in the face. When literally, like, we had, like, Kokoda was our battle. And so Australia feels utterly insulted by the treatment that we were given after World War Two, and MacArthur just shows total disregard for it. Like, it, it's weird. He kind of took advantage of Australia and he, he went and based himself in Australia. He developed his cult of personality in Australia and kind of used John Curtin for his own purposes. And then as soon as Australia needs something in return, he kind of shuts Australia completely. Mm. And so, like, personally, out of all the American generals that I can think of, there's very few that I have the same disdain for as I do for old mate Douglas MacArthur. I reckon as, as an Australian, he completely screwed us over. There was a compromise. The compromise was that an Australian commander, uh, a guy called John Northcott, could lead the UK zone. So the UK zone was governed by an Australian, but it was still like a UK zone. Hmm. And so Chifley, again, being the country boy that he is, being pretty outraged with a lot of the treatment that he's been given, he just says, when it comes to foreign policy, leave it to the dock. And Dr. Herbert Ebbett is actually the one who deals with it. Herbert Ebbett is really important. He goes on to be the General Secretary of the UN. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's like a Banky Moon level figure. Yeah. Go Herbert. Yeah. He actually then succeeds Chifley. Uh, when Chifley leaves, he succeeds Chifley as the Labour leader. Never gets to be Prime Minister, but he's a really significant person in Australian history. And he also drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Oh, damn. So, yeah. Like, any legal study students, you should probably know his name because he's significant for, very significant for international law. And so what Chifley does is Chifley, when it comes to foreign policy, he goes along with, like, America because there's no alternative. And so, like, America's starting, like, the kind of the Bretton Woods agreements, which was basically, like, setting up uh, international economic rules. So it's set up, like, the International Monetary Fund, try and create a web of free trade agreements between countries. And basically, it's free trade policed by America. And Australian unions don't like that very much because that's a threat to their businesses to have, like, ultimate free trade because we want actually a little bit of protection. If you're a union member, you want a little bit of protectionism so that Australians buy Australian wool and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, they're, they're quite sceptical of this. Chifley's like, we've got no other choice. What are we going to do? Antagonise America. And so, Chifley goes along with it and he actually annoys the unions because he kind of tells the unions to get alongside it. This is not a battle we need to, we're going to fight. And so he go, Chifley goes along with the Bretton Woods agreements. He gets the unions to follow it. The other important thing that he does is he starts saying Asia is the future of Australia. And so where a lot of kind of attention in the Cold War is devoted to, it's devoted to Europe and kind of the division of Germany. He's like, our future has nothing to do in Europe. It's all to do with Asia. And so he starts pivoting Australia towards having relationships with Asia. Where it's not really until we get to Harold Holt that that starts to manifest itself in proper relationships, but Chifley starts that trend. But, like I said before, Chifley wanted to avoid the uncontrollable growth of the 20s. So he didn't want a roaring 20s to repeat itself. He wanted stable growth that would not result in a collapse. So he put controls, again, like the Greens Party would love him today. He put controls on prices. He put rent controls. So he actually froze... Uh, rent prices for, for a decent time. He put controls on how much he could charge for food 
on how much uh, you could charge um, for exporting, or sorry, how much you had to pay for importing, and actually put a limit on how much companies could import in a given year. Hmm. So he's actually just trying to stabilize the economy and restrict trade so that it happens at a slow level. Who, which industry is primarily responsible for kind of speeding up the pace of the economy? Like in Australia? Well, in any country. In any country. What industry causes businesses to do more trade? Mining. What gives mining more capital to work with? One of our podcasters is part of this industry. Bank. Oh, I don't know. Banking. Banking. So Mm. banks supply money to businesses and the more money they supply to businesses, the quicker they can grow. So... Basically, Chifley is really sceptical around the banks because it's the banks that cause the roaring 20s because the banks are giving loans to people and they then put those loans into the share market. So they take out these massive loans at the time. So $2,000 at the time, huge loan. And they then actually just pump it into the stock market, which gives these businesses just completely unsustainable growth as they're getting way more capital, but it's going to create a massive fallout when people can't repay the banks down the track. And he is really worried that the banking system is destined for failure. Because basically he's like, the whole shareholder system sucks. Every CEO is focused on giving a profit at the end of the year. That's their number one focus. As I'm here, I want to give my shareholders a huge profit margin at the end of the year. What that lends itself to is short-term learning. So practices that might make you a lot of money in the short term, but won't make you a lot of money moving forward as people default on mortgages and default on loans to the banks. So Chifley is very skeptical around giving banks anywhere near the amount of control that they had in the 1920s. So what he does is the Commonwealth Bank is publicly owned at the time. That's that's the government's bank. Chifley uses the Commonwealth Bank to buy shares in every private bank. So the government has a share of all the banks and basically every bank had to put some, like part of the deal was that every bank had to put some of their funds aside in the Commonwealth Bank basically to make sure that banks don't loan out more than they have the capacity to to hold. And this is designed Mm -hmm. to prevent bank failures and also to limit the amount of money they give out to people so that you don't create another huge bubble in either the share market, in property, or in any aspect of the economy. Follow me so far. Yeah. So restrict the banks by making them put money aside in the Commonwealth Bank. Yeah. Actually, this wasn't legal. So Section 92 of the Constitution... Um, prohibits the government restricting free trade between Australian private businesses. So the banks, they take Chifley to the High Court and in 1947, the High Court goes, yeah, that's unconstitutional, you can't do that. It's a bit of an issue for Ben Chifley. Mm. If you were to nationalise an industry, have the government completely take over one part of the economy, what would you do? I reckon like, um, like supermarkets, I reckon. Ooh. Food, like distribution of essential food, I feel. Mm. So um, you're saying no coals, no woolies, uh, or just <laughs> coals brought to you by Albo? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. Um, go low, uh, go low. <laughs> That's a good one. I was thinking like the A League. Ah, uh, that would be good too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, alcohol. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they already have a pretty iron grip on it. Gambling. <laughs> Gambling, yeah. But by nationalised, do you just mean just tearing it all down? Like, is that... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in favour of outlawing gambling. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, the slot, the slot machines. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So you're actually giving good suggestions. I was, I was gonna, I was gonna. <laughs> what, go, what, what would you? Know? I was gonna go with the reality TV sector. <laughs> just, you think there needs to be some government control? It's, it's just running amok right now. Just, so rather than chasing the dollar, you do what's of huge. Uh, Australian heritage and you revive Australian heritage reality TV shows it's, like X Factor. So mm. it, it's, it, it goes in trends, right? So like 2008, 2012, even before 2008, it was like talent shows. You got yeah. Oz Idol, The Voice, X Factor popping up. Australia's Got Talent. Then after that, uh, kind of, I'd say a, a split between cooking and renovations. They probably both had their... Oh, the block in the, in the early, mm. early 2010s. I the think block. Backyard Blitz had to walk so the block could run. Better <laughs> 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 Homes and Gardens being the consistent like, yeah, Friday night. So you got the block. There was My House Rules, My Kitchen my Rules. My Kitchen Rules. Unfortunately, <laughs> Master Chef, of course, had its. Master Chef Kids as well. They had time their in period the of yeah. dominance. And now it's just like, just so brain numbing. Like Love Island. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's all about, yeah, love, relationships, sex cells, I guess. Um, yeah, real, uh, real profound think piece we're yeah. getting here from, from Jay. <laughs> but it, I guess it works, I don't know. But, I mean, for mine, I'm not I'm not watching any commercial TV and that's not getting me back in. Not the X Factor. No, no, oh, the, sorry, um, no, no, no. the yeah, current yeah. the current shows, yeah. If they, like... I, I think the greatest reality TV show of all time is Survivor. Like, genuinely, that's... Just, <laughs> oh, well, that goes without saying. Yeah, but, so, like, but and in Amer- more so in America than Australia. So, yeah. the American American Survivor, aired just before COVID, mm. after they'd been running for 40 seasons, they did a season of all winners. So, every contestant had won Survivor before. So, winners yeah, of Yeah, brilliant. Incredible, brilliant. incredible brilliant. season of Survivor. Mm. Shout out to Tony, who won with, like, the best game I've ever Mad seen in Survivor. Can they do the same thing with X Factor? That's all I'm saying. Outchin Childs versus Reese Maston versus I oh stopped watching after the second season. Rest in peace. I know, yeah. Johnny Ruffo. I did. That was a rather sad story. Yeah, that is sad. Um, um, but I think in in that category of Survivor, you also have like Amazing Race pops up with a few good seasons. Mm. And then, I mean, what about the game shows? Do they deserve more of a spot? Deal or no deal comes back. <laughs> Temptation. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a big fan of the chase. The chase, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, there's 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 yeah, there's definitely room for because the Amazing Race is on a constant cycle of oh, it's back. It's yeah, cancelled. There's, de- there's definitely mm-hmm. a few good oh, seasons. Scott Bo Ryan now <laughs> had a few good seasons back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I love the American Amazing Race. That was mm. the Shane Amazing Race. The first Bo Ryan's first season was a bit of a joke. I actually watched that one. Mm. The group that was in front, they. The Amazing Race should never be democratic. It's purely survival of the best, not we get to vote and who we don't like. Yeah. Because what happened was these two guys had won every single round and then in the final round, the, every team got to vote on who had like a four-hour uh, disadvantage mm. and they all voted for these guys because they had been crushing it every week and so they got eliminated in the semifinals because they couldn't catch up that four-hour window. Yeah. Mm. Um, and they didn't do anything wrong to deserve that four-hour window. It was just the it was you know, not too good. Yeah, suffering from success. Yeah, so it was a bit of a bit of an outrage there. Um, I think we I think I've talked about this before, but do you think we're like beginning to get enough clout that we can make a push to get on one of these shows and be like? <laughs> I reckon we could. Def- I'm used to talking under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> we could definitely get a like we couldn't get Amazing Race. 
all he could get is if a if like a SPS or like a seven mate tried a um tried like a, a rival spin off that's just not as good. Okay, yeah. I reckon we could potentially get <laughs> like the final shows. slot in. <laughs> These guys are podcast, and like you know how like TV shows try to like act as though YouTube isn't a threat to them yeah, and yeah. act as though they're on board with YouTube. Like, these guys are podcasters and it's like, you look at your downloads and it's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, that being said, if you want to sponsor us... Oh, my yeah, gosh. And, I mean, I've I've definitely had a look at the, the Survivor application form before. Um, I just get too paranoid. I, I yeah. know. I, in my head, I, I'd have this, like, boss plan... But then, like, after, like, two hours, I'd convince myself that they're all conspiring against me and just, like, yeah. act paranoid and get myself voted out. Yeah. So, Ben, oh, I, thought, I, I thought you were pretty... A couple of things go my way. I reckon I could go all right. Yeah. Mm. I thought you guys were pretty good on um, the Roblox Survivor that we, <laughs> that we played during COVID. <laughs> I think there's, there's no reason why you guys couldn't... I think I played a little hard. I had too many group chats going. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> right, so, Ben, Chifley. He is looking to nationalise the banks. And one of the things that Ben Chifley says is that, like, we are at a unique time in history where we can shape the direction of the nation. And he says we're going to be a shining light on a hill. And... <laughs> Great Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> well, I did promise another Jesus. <laughs> yeah. He is referencing... So the sermon, if you're unfamiliar, there's a section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus instructs his followers to be like salt and he says effectively be like a city on a hill being that everyone's going to watch you by your conduct make sure your conduct stands out as one that is of a higher one that represents me rather than uh, one that dishonors me and I don't know about you guys when I watch like just for record all three of us here are Christians when I watch like the portrayal of Christians on TV usually I don't laugh not because I'm offended I'm like the writer clearly actually doesn't know that many Christians that well. That's just like, it's mm. such an exaggeration or such a caricature of how Christians talk. That Rick and Morty episode had me in stitches. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> bang on. Because yeah. that is the most accurate portrayal. Yeah. And I was like <laughs> wincing with embarrassment at the same time. <laughs> how would it be a shining city out of here? <laughs> Way to go, Rick. <laughs> so Ben Chifley says, we need to be a city on a hill. And he actually invokes the language of Christianity to describe what Labor's doing. And it's actually a little bit of a different direction from John Curtin, who was the famous atheist politician at the time. So Chifley's a Christian or he's just using that? Just using that rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like probably like in the same way that most people were in the forties would kind of culturally identify as as a Christian, but wouldn't claim to have a devout practicing faith. It's a bit of an issue though. So he, in 19, they move ahead with the nationalization of the banks but in 1949, there was a huge strike from coal miners. And they're thinking, Chifley's our boy. He's a train driver. Chifley's going to understand this. Chifley's going to get us, be able to like sort out a good deal for us where we can get much better working conditions. Chifley goes, no, go back to the mines. And they're like, what? You're on our side. Like, you're the labor guy. Not only are you the labor guy, you're actually from the trade unions yourself. And you're a train driver. Chifley's like, we need the coal. Also, your conditions aren't that bad. Go back to the mines. And they're outraged by it. And they're like, okay, we're going to strike then. Chifley's like, okay, we'll get the army in. The army will be coal miners. Go. And, like, Chifley goes from being, like, a union rep to being, like, your classic, like, 1920s, like, stereotype of a... Just capitalist. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and so the unions become incredibly annoyed with him. Chifley's very frustrated by this because he's like, we only have limited political capital to spend. I need to spend it on the banks. If we nationalise the banks, you guys need to go back to the mines. We can do the Bretton Woods agreements with America. I want to use all my political capital on nationalising the banks. So Chifley, he gets attacked from both his left and his right. The right is like, you idiot. Why are you, you like, effectively you communists for taking over the banks? The left are like, you capitalists for not backing us in the strike. Hmm. And he's kind of wedged massively in 1949. Robert Menzies is the candidate going into the 1949 election. Labor is expected to win. So Labor are favourites for the 1949 election. And again, Menzies is not hugely positively viewed in Australia because of his, like, pig iron bob. That comes back to haunt him Mm -hmm. big time. Yeah. He has a huge advantage over Ben Chifley, though. Campaign finances. Not just because he's the UAP. There's an industry that flocks to help the UAP in this election, which would be... Mining. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong UAP. <laughs> the banks. The banks. So, obviously, the banks are really paranoid about being nationalised, so they throw all their money at Robert Menzies, he actually has a campaign advantage of 10 to 1 for finances. Damn. 1949 happens, uh, Robert Menzies goes on to win the election and he wins quite convincingly. He wins 74 to 47. Money talks, hey? Money talks. The number of the AKs is what I like to to call that. What? 74 to 47. Mm. Remember my Black Ops? That (laughs) 74U, I killed it with that gun and then downgraded to the 47. Is there such thing as an AK-74? AK-74U. Wow. There you go. It's, it was a bit okay on Black Ops 1. <laughs> and so in 1949, I said we will finish this three-part of the way we started. Robert Menzies became the Prime Minister hmm. of Australia. And then from there, he'd go on to have the longest reign that any Australian Prime Minister's ever had. Wow, what a great cyclical narrative you constructed there. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's history. I didn't construct anything. No, you built this. <laughs> so that that all actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this wasn't alternate history. Oh. <laughs> I did have an idea for YouTube. Like, frame a video as an alternate history, but just tell it as though, like, <laughs> what if Adolf Hitler won the 1932 election? <laughs> what if he then... <laughs> what if... President Hindenburg then gave him power to be the Chancellor in 1933. <laughs> this frame it as- What if? I guess we'll never know. <laughs> no, that did happen. <laughs> and so, yeah, Ben Chifley uh, lost in 1949. Herbert Everett became the opposition leader, but was pretty impotent in opposition because he was like a diplomat more than he was a bulldog. And so mm. he wasn't capable of taking Menzies down. I think Ben Chifley would make a great candidate on The Amazing Race. Oh, yeah. Imagine, I think Chifley and Herbert Everett would make the dream team. So Herbert Everett's got, like, the languages of the world. Yeah. Chifley's just yeah. got your working class grit. Mm. Real shame that they never got <laughs> to see that here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll Alternate wrap, history, perhaps. We'll what, if, <laughs> <laughs> what if Chifley and Herbert were on Amazing Race? <laughs> I'm going to start storyboarding that now. <laughs> Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.